everybody. This is Heba and Katerina from Los Angeles, and you're listening to the Lost and Found podcast, the podcast that inspires, educates, and motivates people like you. Thank you so much for tuning into Lost and Found, and today we have a very important guest on with us. Her name is Arwa, and she's a mother of three daughters with an education in sciences, and she's been married for 30 years. But most importantly, she was born in Gaza, and then she migrated to the United States in her 20s. Especially with everything going on in the world, this topic is going to be very relevant because this is something that is happening right now. She's recently talked to ABC along with other news channels since she has family there right now. And she's currently directly impacted by the current situation. So we're really looking forward to having you on with us today and having a very open and candid conversation. Again, like Hubba mentioned a very important and relevant conversation. Today's day and age, you know, been a really eye-opening experience to see live what's happening and has been happening in Gaza and the West Bank over the last, you know, almost decade at this point. And it's interesting because when Heb and I were discussing, you know, kind of how to deal with, you know, having this platform where we can share a lot and how we can bring really important messages and guests onto the platform. Um, Arwa has I think, you know, this is going to be one of the most meaningful and important conversations that we've ever had on this platform. So I'm really excited to introduce the topic that we're going to be covering today. And it seems so simple. It's the personal story, real life experience of a Palestinian American woman who was born in Gaza. And we are so excited to have you on today, Arwa, because we're able to use this forum and space to bring perspectives to everyone listening. And we are so deeply grateful because the reality is that a lot of people don't have representation of a Palestinian within their friend groups or within their circles. And so it's going to shed some light on the reality of what people in Gaza have faced in the past and what they're facing today. So we're really, really excited to have you on. And we're so excited to dive right into your personal background. So I think that a place that we always really love to start is your childhood, because I think your childhood is what makes you you and really shapes your beliefs and values. And so we would really love to know kind of what your childhood was like and what growing up in Gaza was like. Uh, thank you so much, Kat. First of all, I really would like to thank you uh, for this discussion and conversation. And uh, I'm really happy to be here and to share my story. Um, I don't think it's a normal story just because I was born in Gaza. It's definitely um it's different from any other place in this world. Uh, so I was, um, as a child, dad was actually a doctor. He graduated from U.S. Um, and he came back deciding to uh, help his community. Growing up in Gaza, um, his focus 
on raising us, um, him and my mom, is to give us the education that we need to establish careers in life. After all, we are in an occupied area, which is Gaza, where opportunities of work are limited, resources are limited. So to be to survive this world, his way was to focus on our education to take us to next levels. So I went to schools, me, my sister, my brothers, uh, again, you know, we would really encourage to study hard. So we were, you know, we tried to have the highest grades. So growing up, again, our focus was on, edu- on education. But although that was the focus, again, as I said, Gaza is an occupied area. So going to school, we would see the Israeli soldiers coming to our schools, taking kids right in front of our eyes. And we were instructed by our parents not to to come close to them because potentially we could be captured and then they will ne- they will never see us again. So it was really that fear when you go to school again. This education can be interrupted anytime or by the soldiers coming and start shooting. Uh, but I, I managed my way through school. I graduated with good grades and I uh, decided to go to college. Um, and first, the first. Um, thought in my mind I wanted to go to a Palestinian college. So I went to a school near Ramallah called Birzeit. And that was my second encounter with Israelis where they would come to our schools. Um, They killed students right in front of our eyes. And I remember I was in a chemistry class one day. An hour after that, um, the Israeli soldiers came and they start shooting right and left, and uh, the person who was sitting right next to me got killed right in front of our eyes. So it wasn't really, again, growing up in Gaza, it was not normal. We try, as I said, you know, the focus is on education and to be healthy, but there was a bigger thing that is, you know, we could not avoid, which is the occupation. So it wasn't easy for us to leave. It's not easy for us to come back. Israel controlled the borders. We have to go, you know, we have, we can be searched any times. Going to school was not safe. Going to college was not safe. But thank God, you know, I was able to actually, so the Israelis um, decided to close my school, that Palestinian school. And I had to leave Gaza and uh, Palestine and move to Egypt to finish my education. So that's, that's basically my childhood. Again, focusing on getting good grades, education, build my future as a Palestinian growing in Gaza. That was the only way to survive this world. That's very difficult. And so hard to hear because that sounds very far from normal especially witnessing you know seeing somebody in your class just pass away right in front of you Mm -hmm. Um, what was it like growing up in terms of getting in and out was there an airport were you able to leave Gaza easily what was that really like going to you know, visit people and leave the country? It wasn't easy. So again, you know, Gaza is an occupied area. So if you leave, at that time, we were allowed to go through Tel Aviv, but you have to be searched so many times, basically humiliated if you want to use that route. Uh, going to Egypt, we, we have to go through the Rafah border. And at that time, we have to cross two borders. You, we will be searched by Israel first, and then we will be also getting into Egypt. Those are not going out of out of the country and inside the country growing up was not something easy at all. It's it's a challenge. And as I said, you know, like you basically can be searched anytime. They can, Israel soldiers can stop you and they search you and uh, 
just you know decide maybe for you not to go so it it's not um there there is nothing guaranteed over there from one minute to another things will change we all there is like you decide it's not like you decide you just to travel and you, you take your passport and go it it's never like that it's just you don't know you you go and you might be going back to gaza again try it for another time and this is why i truly appreciate being in us where actually you can just go from one state to another without anybody talking to you or being searched this is definitely something i cherish and appreciate being here because i struggled growing up in gaza even to go to jerusalem i have to go through so many checkpoints I have to be searched, kind of humiliation every time. Even if I want to go to um, any place outside Gaza, I will have to go through this. So that was really my my experience um, growing up and leaving. And I was one of those fortunate people that actually my family, they had the money to send me um, to other places. But many people from Gaza, they're not fortunate actually to leave because it's so expensive to leave. And adding to this is again the humiliation and... Uh, you know, being allowed to go. Thank you so much for that insight. Um, Some of the stuff you said were really interesting. You know, one question that I kind of have is when you talk about this constant policing and searching, and also it almost sounds like intimidation, like that there's this constant, you know, surveillance that's happening on Gaza. Can you just kind of touch on like, what was the exact reason that you think there had to be this constant surveillance and policing understanding that this is an occupied state and you know they have this control what did your parents explain to you growing up like well the reason why they have to watch us is because this happened in the past and they took over control and now you know they control all of the you know infrastructure and we don't have the same access that other people have in different regions in the middle east what were the conversations within your family and then also just like internally for you like because i feel like for me growing up i would be like why does it why are we treated so differently than people in other countries around us. First question about why you've been searched. There is really no reason. Just being a Palestinian, you they have the right to stop you and search you. So you don't have to do anything wrong. You know, being students, going to school, that's enough cause for them for the Israeli soldier to stop and search you. There is you don't mean really, as I said, you don't need to do anything. I remember one of my experiences well while I was in Birzeit um, I was in a, the dorm and the, the Israeli soldier came to the dorm and started shooting people outside. And as a student, and I was young, I was so interested to see what's happening. So I stood outside the dorm, you know, just checking what's going on. And I was taken by the Israeli soldiers just for being doing nothing, just by standing outside. So there is really no reason. Uh, for them to take you. Again, they have the right because they're occupying. That's what they think. As of my parents, they were very careful teaching us not to engage because, again, we were brought up um, on focusing on education and doing something for ourselves. So they tried so much to tell us, you know, just to stay away from all this and just to focus on our uh, studies and finishing our degrees and getting jobs. Unfortunately, this was impossible. You know, again, as I give you an example, I was just sitting outside the dorm and I was taken. I was released by the end of the day. It was a bad experience. You know, we're sitting outside, no food, no nothing for a whole day, just 
for, for absolutely doing nothing. That's, that's my experience. Yeah, I feel like what I'm almost hearing is like you become a little bit desensitized to because that was the normal way of life. So it it almost I mean we're all creatures of habit, so it almost feels like if you're brought up that way and that's the way that you are your environment almost shapes you to just see that as normal. When you came to the US, what did adjusting to this new sense of freedom like when you were saying even going from state to state and then I guess just being able to see opportunities you have and the lack of feeling like you're being surveillanced and policed and judged all the time what did that feel like yeah so it's not like I got used to it but really if you think about it I did not have a choice you know, like there was not much of a choice for me, you know, like it's, uh, I just have to deal with it. So it's, it's not like I got used to it, but I had to deal with it because again, I had a bigger goal, which is to graduate and to do something for my community. I was never uh, used to it per se. Then from, from, remember from Gaza, I lived in Egypt where I went to the American school and I finished my education. So I understood, I start feeling different, you know, the difference between being in Gaza than being in Egypt. Now you're free to go. There are no checkpoints. And then I came to the States and, you know, my appreciation of being here and again, you know, being free to go wherever I want to do what I want. I mean, definitely that was something, as I said, I cherish and I loved um, and I felt the difference from the first day I was here. That sounds like very challenging and it's just great to understand and gain more insights around what your experience really looked like. There's so much culture in Gaza. It's shaped so much, I'm sure, of your identity, your daily life. But what did that kind of look like? Because it seems like the culture was kind of suppressed, but it still found a way to flourish through that suppression. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. So the culture, you know, the food, the clothes, even under occupation, we somehow still, we were able to keep it, you know. And also remember, I went to a Palestinian university first and we will do a lot of activities. There were a lot of focus on culture. So we will do a celebration for clothes, for example, you know, like, uh, so the students will be wearing clothes from villages, different villages, uh, different uh, cities in Palestine. Um, so that really uh, opened my eyes to see even beyond Gaza, you know, the West Bank. Uh, um, and again, you know, I, I'm one of those fortunate people who actually lived in Gaza until 18 years old and lived in uh, Ramallah, which is very close to Jerusalem for three years and then moving moved to Egypt after that. So overall in Gaza and Palestine overall, there was so much focus on the culture, the food, you know, for example, the za'atar where we eat it with the olive oil. So as a student, we used to go and help um, the people in the villages to cut the olives to make the oil. And again, you know, we were, we learned about the clothing and all the different things. There were a lot of activities as students that we did helping the people over there. The culture definitely um, stayed stayed with us. And now it's, it's, I see it everywhere. The clothes, the food, it's really now known to the world. I love that you mentioned, you know, olive trees and really the, the cultural heritage that stands behind Gaza. 
What does the kofia mean? Because, you know, a lot of people are talking about it. They're wearing this, this type of fishnet, black and white presentation for Palestine. But what does that really entail? And what does that mean for others to understand? Yeah, it's simple. It's simply like, a, a, it's a simple of pro-Palestinian. Um, so um, we, we wore this, uh, people wore this for a long, long time. We basically keep this tradition. So wearing kofia means simply that you are uh, Palestinian or you have some roots to Palestine or now you are pro-Palestinian. So people wear it for those reasons, to show, to show support to, to the Palestinians. And again, this is something like also wearing a top. This is something that Palestinian used to wear. Uh, for many, many generations. So we just skipped that. And now it became even uh, known worldwide. So that's that's what's nice about our culture now that it's people know about it. And actually people are happy. So many people, not necessarily Palestinians, are wearing either the kufiya or, as I said, you know, the tob, which is um, done in a certain way. It takes a lot of effort to do this. Uh, definitely it's... Um, it's something that we cherish and uh, we're keeping as part of our culture. I'm really happy that the world is through, I think, tragic um, events like what has happened in cur- current history and then also just over the past almost, um, you know, century at this point. I think that it's been really beautiful to see the world come together and represent the Palestinian people and Mm -hmm. really use their voice and platforms to speak up against what's happening in Gaza right now. So I'm really happy that, you know, these symbols and these different parts of Palestinian culture and the beauty of it is being kind of symbolized all over the world and everywhere. And I, I I think it's so beautiful. And it's kind of hard to talk about because I feel like sometimes I'm almost like scared to say the wrong thing because it, it feels like with the current events happening, especially in the beginning, what standing up for what I know is truly right and the horrors that are happening in Gaza right now are yeah. unforgivable and inexcusable. So just talking about recent events or I guess developments in Gaza after October 7th, what is like your perspective on the global response and the media coverage that's happening in the United States and also just around the world? Yeah, that's a very good, very good question. I'm actually just very disappointed in how the media is talking about Palestinians and Gaza. I mean, I, I would think like anyone would be asking for ceasefire by now. I mean, saving lives doesn't matter. I mean, Palestinians, saving life is really a good message and it's very important. And it's really um, sad to see all those people, you know, dying in, in Gaza. You, you know, the message should be let those people live, right? And the situation, it's always when it's controlled by polit- politics and politicians, it gets to be complicated. I don't think it is that complicated. I think Palestinians should be living like any other people. They should have the right for their borders, the right to live a decent life. They're really good and smart people. 
and it should they should be allowed to be living a good life that should be the focus so the, most people focus on october 7 but i can tell you are growing up in gaza it's it's way beyond that it's an occupation of 75 years and i lived through this through the 80s and even growing up you know i lived through this occupation i suffered it's it's not just october 7th it's way before that but uh, what's really sad is people focus on october 7th and they forget all the history uh, behind that i haven't been able to see my family and my nieces and nephews growing up because again you know gaza was an open prison borders are closed i wasn't allowed to go i have not seen them for a very very long time i mean more than 15 years if we want to talk about the media i'm really disappointed how the media is handling the situation especially in us the media in us um i know some parts around the world they're more aware of what's happening they know the real story but it seems people here are just taking one side and they're not seeing the full picture. That really breaks my heart. And, and I feel uh, my mission is to keep educating people and tell them about how life was before October 7th and even growing up in the 70s, you know, and the 80s. Um, how, was, how was my life there? We were occupied then. And it was really hard to live through all the difficulties because of the occupation. It's so interesting because it sounds like October 7th is one chapter of this novel that's been going on for so many years. The media is honing in on one chapter and taking it and potentially running with that. Yeah. Um, which is absolutely frustrating. And I can only imagine because you have family, direct family there. Um, yeah. What are the the current circumstances that are impacting you directly with your family being there? What does that look like? Are you in communication with them? People seem to understand that, you know, there is communication that happens, but what does that really look like? The communication is really rare. I cannot talk to them on the phone. Uh, what I do, so but first of all, I have a sister who is a pediatrician and I have three brothers. They're all educated. Most of my family is actually in the medical field. They followed my dad's uh, uh, path. Basically, they've been running for their lives. Um, their, their homes in Gaza City was bombed, so they had to leave. They went to one place, they were bombed in that place. They were told to go to another place and they're also being bombed in the second place. So their life is at risk and the communication with them is extremely hard. What I do, I will just send a message and um, like a, a text saying, just asking, how are you doing? And all I'm hoping for is to get a reply uh, saying we're still alive. Uh, and this happens after days. So it's not consistent. Again, there are no phone calls. It's, as you know, Israel got the power, got the food, got the, the water is polluted. I know they had issues. They all had stomach problems because of the pollution of the water. There are no food. There is no food there. Um, so I know they starved for days. Resources are extremely limited for them. It's really sad for me to see my family going through this. I mean, you can imagine that, you know, I'm here. Um, my sister is there. My sister is educated. She's a pediatrician. She's really a good person. And the difference between me and her is just she decided to, to stay there, to live in Gaza, to help her community. That was her focus. You know, for me, I decided I want to build another life somewhere else. It just breaks my heart to see them going through this. I mean, I could not imagine that 
at this time I could see this happening to anyone. No food, no water, no clean water, um, and uh, no internet, no electricity, no nothing. I mean, what amazes me is the whole world is looking at this and they're just doing nothing about it. So it's, it's really breaking my heart. If this happened to any other nation, I would be in the street protesting, just asking that people get their essentials at least, right? And again, you know, my family has nothing to do with politics, as I described, We're more family focused on education and building future. Unfortunately, things are not in our control. I think the word that you use, um, used when you are talking about the media disappointing is how I feel about how this, how the world and all of governments and organizations that exist in order to ensure that human rights are upheld around the world and that you know these war crimes against innocent civilians are punished it mm -hmm. it truly is so disappointing and it makes me think how can we have peace in the world if we're watching these horrific events of hunger and deprivation and people not mm -hmm. having basic access to drinkable water and access to you know, it's like water is one thing and then you have somebody who let's say has a medical treatment that they need access to and now every hospital in this tiny place of Gaza has been bombed and destroyed mm -hmm. these things that it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around. So when you bring it back to like, this is my sister, like I grew up in the same house as her and she's running for her life every day. And I don't even know if she's alive for days at a time. Like that brings yeah. it to such a human level because you're right. When we look at these headlines and the news, what I see happen over and over again is especially here in U.S. media, the words don't reflect reality. I think there's a lot of like tiptoeing around what's happening and they keep avoiding words, Israel or killing yeah. and murdering when that's clearly what's happening. So yeah. it is truly just so disappointing because these are people's lives. And I think that one thing that has really struck me, and this is something I saw from have a, at one of the protests that she was at is we become desensitized to these numbers, you know, over first it was 2000, then it was 10,000, then it was 20,000, then it's over 25,000. And it's like, you see these numbers, but then when you see every single name written on a, on a piece of paper in the smallest font, and it goes on, it just goes and goes and goes and you can conceptualize that these are lives of people, you know, these are brothers and sisters and students and they had the whole life of them ahead of them. They had children, they had family, they had goals and beliefs and opinions and they were taken from us for what it's it's it, it is um, it is a madness to be honest and if i want to describe my life right now it's just definitely you know like it's very hard for me since my whole family is there and i'm the only one out 
And basically my life is reading those lists, believe it or not. I, every single day I read the lists of the people injured, the people killed, uh, the people left. My life is becoming reading lists because I'm so scared to find my nephew's name, my brother's name, my sister's name on, on, on any of those lists. It's really, really a sad story here. That is absolutely heartbreaking, especially, you know, as the toll has hit 20,000 right now. I hope and believe that at this point, the one pro in all of this is that there is more awareness and people know more about Palestine and about Gaza they realize that people are people. Um, as yeah. you think about the future, what are your hopes for the future? I mean, both personally and for Palestine. Well, my hope, first of all, is ceasefire, right? Because again, people need, people should live. Uh, so that will be the first hope. And then rebuild. And, you know, we're talking about two state solutions. So why are we just talking about that? And we're not implementing any of it. So that's, that's my problem. If, the whole world is realizing that Palestinians should have their country, should have their borders, should be controlling their borders. The Palestinians are smart people. They're educated people. There's, um, there is a big potential among them. So my hope is to have this, you know, a Palestinian country where people can control their fate, can control their borders. They can walk freely on their land without being searched, without being killed. That would be my hope. Implement implement maybe two-state solution. I don't know, but just do something. First of all, stop killing. Second is build Gaza again and let people there live, like any normal people. People are people. Uh, doesn't mean that I was, I was born in Gaza. I am less than anyone else. So at this point, it's just that's how it feels. You know, you're born there that basically automatically put you as a second class or third class citizen. I don't know. And this should be definitely, this concept needs to be eliminated. Those people there, they were born in Gaza, they should live, they should have their good future ahead of them. They should have hope. And I think if you give the people there the hope to live, there's a future, there's tomorrow, there are jobs, there's, you know, people, they want to live, you know, people in Gaza, like any other people, they just want to have a good life. And they want to have their kids uh, getting their education. Again, they're very similar to any other people, their hopes are not that big, just they want to, they want to have a good life. And they want to be able to control their life. If one of them decided to travel, he can't actually travel doesn't have to be returned back by Israel or searched or humiliated just because he wants to leave. I agree, Arwa. And I think you bring up some topics that I hope that everybody that listens to this asks themselves. Because what I've been asking myself as I learn more and my eyes open more and more to the realities of everything that's happening right now is why is a solution not being enacted? What do these leaders really want what is their true yeah. agenda and is it really peace because these talks these two-state solution talks have been going on since the beginning of the occupation how much longer and how much more do we need to witness to understand that something's not right and another question I think that is really important that you bring up is 
Why is my life and my freedom more important than their life and their freedom? Exactly. And that's what that's why this is really hard for me. Um, going out, eating out, knowing that they don't have the food, sleeping, and I know they don't have a, a place to sleep. You know, they're being bombed every minute. I think the last thing they were talking about sleeping in their cars. So it's it's just um it's really very very hard for me knowing my own sister and brothers are going through this and i just i have uh, a normal life and they don't and the only reason is because they decided to stay in gaza and i decided to leave and you know i think before we close out i really just want to say that i'm taking this moment just to say the most genuine prayer and from the bottom of my heart, because I hope that your family and everyone there right now who is riddled with fear, unimaginable fear and pain and suffering, that they have some peace in their heart. And I really truly wish for a ceasefire peace. I wish for a Palestinian state. I believe that Palestine deserves their land and their freedom and a place to develop and flourish and not be afraid and to hide and not be able to have the same fulfillment of the hopes and dreams that we should all have. I truly am so thankful, Heba and I are so thankful that you came on the podcast and that you shared your authentic experience and life story and perspective because a lot of people don't have access to this true, real, raw, authentic perspective of a person that genuinely just wants peace and freedom for all. Nothing nothing in this type of perspective is controversial. This is just the right to human freedom and human life. To everyone who listens and, you know, has these feelings that might be stirred up because of the things that we see and read and the way that we're desensitized and don't understand. This is such an eye-opening experience. Just really wanted to say thank you. And before we wrap up, I did want to share some resources with our listeners on ways to stay educated, up to date, and really see the reality of everything that's happening. Some Instagram pages that you can follow are Motaz Aziza. So that's M-O-T-A-Z and then an underscore A-Z-A-I-Z-A is one of them. And we'll go ahead and share more resources in our show notes. And I just really hope that you take the time to see the reporters and the press that is happening live out of Gaza because... These are things that once you see, I think you just will not be able to ever look past. So thank you again, Arwa, for sharing your story. It's been so touching and just such an eye-opening perspective. And I really, truly wish your family peace and safety and uh, much, much more. Thank you so much, Kat. It's a pleasure talking to you and to Heba. And uh, I'm here if you guys have any questions or if, any of your audience has any questions, um, I'm here to answer any questions for you. So thank you so much again for having me.